0: Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. The podcast where John and Hank Green answer your questions, provide dubious advice, and share with you all of the vital news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Yeah! Welcome!
1: We're gonna have a good time. To, are we gonna have a good time today? I just want to make sure.
0: Uh, I think we're gonna have a good time, but uh, as comedy podcasts go, Hank, it uh, it might get dark.
1: That's what. That's how we like it.
0: Uh, can I start today with a short poem? A very, very short poem.
1: That would please me greatly.
0: Um, can I look up the short poem that I uh, I gotta I gotta find a short poem real quick, Hank? Um, you forgot about that part. I forgot about that part. But fortunately, uh, I am a veritable fount of short poems. Is it fount or font? Uh, you're the writer. Anyway, this poem is by Mary Oliver uh, from her wonderful book, A Thousand Mornings. It's called uh, I Go Down to the Shore. I go down to the shore in the morning, and depending on the hour, the waves are rolling in or moving out, and I say, oh, I am miserable, what shall what should I do? And the sea says in its lovely voice, excuse me, I have work to do. Mary Oliver, uh, her poem, I Go Down to the Shore, uh, from her book, A Thousand Mornings. Uh, and it brings us nicely uh, to our first question, Hank, uh, in this hilarious comedy podcast. Um, it's from an anonymous listener uh, who lives with chronic uh, back pain, Um and has been for many years and quote, I have been told I need to accept it and keep moving forwards and I'm sure the people telling me this are, are right, but moving past it is difficult because it's not like a linear thing. Uh, like when my parents got divorced, I could accept it and move on because there was a linear point that I could move away from. It happened, it sucked, I can deal with it and put space between it and me and not have it crush me. But pain is different. It's part of me. It's stuck with me. Probably forever as there are few options for me at this point. You've both struggled with chronic pain and i was curious how you have gone this far because it really is awful um it's a great question and uh one that is uh one that i think about a lot uh especially when i'm in pain the first thing that i would recommend hank is uh reading this book that i don't know if you've read but it's my favorite book on the topic of pain uh it's called the body in pain by elaine Scarry. are you familiar with it I am not. It's like an academic uh, book, and and it can be dense at times. But at the very beginning, uh, she makes this uh, brilliant observation that completely clarified all of my thoughts about physical pain, um, which is that to be in pain yourself is to have certainty, and to observe or hear about the pain of others is to have doubt, because you can never really understand what other people's pain looks like or feels like. Whereas when you are having pain yourself, it is this you know absolute undeniable certainty.
1: I, I remember uh, hearing I think it was on a podcast probably Radiolab about how awful our pain scales are and how like they don't they're not very useful. Um, when someone goes into the doctor and the doctor says you know tell me your pain on a scale of one to ten, um, th- th- like what people self-report is not is not helpful at all. And, and many people experiencing more pain will list lower on the scale because they can think of things that are much more painful than the thing they're experiencing right now. Um, what tends to uh, be more helpful, and this is was really interesting, was having people say, uh, what would you give up to get rid of your pain? Mm. Would you like, get a, would you get a really bad haircut to get rid of your pain? Or would you take 10 years off your life to get rid of your pain? Right. And I, I actually have a friend who has been studying the, the, sort of not just the human lifespan but this new sort of concept of like can we measure sort of global quality of health not just not just amount of life but quality of life and pain is is very high and and, and chronic back pain in particular is the sort of thing that that they in their research look at as something that takes away a significant amount of of like livable years and is is sort of similar like one year of living with chronic back pain in in their research the way that they measure that is kind of like saying like it's sort of like 75% of a of a healthy year right and so it's it it's very difficult i think to to communicate that to people who have not had that pain and i certainly have not had that pain um and and all of my pain has had the potential of going away someday and and that hope is very powerful and uh and when that hope is not there whether that's whether that's a real lack of hope and that there really is nothing that can be done uh even you know with fingers crossed like future research uh but or if that hope is is just because it becomes very difficult to hope when you are in serious pain um That's very difficult.
0: Yeah, there's a great David Foster Wallace line that I'm probably going to butcher um, in Infinite Jest. He's talking about psychic pain, but um, a character points out that that no single moment is unbearable. Um, It's uh, the collection of all past moments combined with the pain of the present moment, combined with hopelessness about ever being free from this pain in all future moments that's so unbearable. So what I guess I would encourage... um, this person to think about or what I find helpful um, is, uh, you know, things like a uh, talking to not just uh, traditional doctors, but also psychologists and psychiatrists about uh, pain and pain management and b um, trying to live in now instead of catastrophizing and assuming that this pain can never get better. Um, I know that's incredibly I I mean I know from personal experience that's incredibly difficult to do on a a minute by minute basis but uh, that's the only way I've ever found any kind of like peace or relief inside of uh, physical pain the other Mm -hmm. frustrating thing about physical pain is that it defies language like it's very difficult to describe pain I have a theory that one of the reasons we invented metaphors in the first place was as a way of dealing with physical pain because you can't describe it except metaphorically it's like an ice pick behind my eye it's uh it's like uh uh being stabbed in my jaw it's like you know it's always like something it always yeah i have some i have some chronic pain
1: in my leg and i uh it's it's taken me a long time to be able to describe it, and what I say now, and what it actually does feel like, is someone is is rubbing my muscle with sandpaper. It's not like the worst possible feeling, but that's what it feels like. It's like a hot friction. Someone is grabbing and and rubbing the bottom part of my quadricep with sandpaper, and like to me, it's like yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. And people are like, oh, okay. That sounds awful.
0: There's some communicability in the power of metaphor when it comes to pain. Yeah. But still, I think that ultimately uh, pain does defy language. And, and, you know, hopefully, all I can hope for you is that you're surrounded by people who love you and who understand uh, that your pain is real. And and, and please know that it, that it is real. Uh, you never have to doubt that. You never have to doubt that um, what you're experiencing is, is true.
1: Yeah. And going to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist does not mean that you're going to get your your... Uh, your psychological pain treated, it means that you are going to uh, to to find ways to deal with your real pain.
0: Yep, you gotta find psychological ways to deal with physical pain um, when uh, there are no physical solutions to physical pain. Ah, boy, it's another hilarious start to this comedic podcast. All right, Hank, let's move on to a question from Olivia, who asks, Dear John and Hank, if there was an epic battle between Gandalf and Dumbledore, who would win and why?
1: Okay, I mean... I've got nothing against Dumbledore. Uh he's he's
0: this is not a difficult He's question. cunning
1: and he's powerful and he knows a lot of stuff and he's not afraid to manipulate small children and use them in pawns in his deadly games to protect
0: He's a fantastic headmaster of a boarding school. Yes.
1: Well, I mean he's more than that. Uh he's more than that. He's he's trying to save the the world at least uh Britain. Uh, as far as I can tell. It's weird how the, sort of the effects of whatever weirdness is happening in the Harry Potter world never reaches past the boundaries of a very small island. But Dumbledore is just a, a human who has some special powers, and he's been trained in the magical arts. Gandalf is not, that is not what wizards are in Middle-earth. Gandalf is a, g- a god, essentially. Well, he's, he's more of an angel. He's a he's an angel, he, like, sort of, crea- he, well, he was created by God. He's, like, a, a direct creation of of Iluvatar, the god of Middle-earth. He made him. So the question of
0: who would win a uh, epic battle between Gandalf and Dumbledore, uh, to me, there's only one answer. It's obviously Gandalf. Hank and I agree about this. But, Hank, let me ask you a secondary question that I think uh, is going to be a little more difficult for you. Yes, yes. If you could either be... Gandalf, or Dumbledore, who would you want to be? I don't know.
1: I don't feel like I have a simple answer to that question. Oh,
0: I do. It's easy. This is not a difficult question. The answer is Dumbledore. It's better to be Dumbledore. Every day of the week, it's better to be Dumbledore. For one thing, um, just life is better. Life is is better for Dumbledore than it is for Gandalf. For another thing, you have better company. He does seem to have a much better time. And uh, Gandalf... Uh, smokes. And I find smoking uh, to be (laughs) a despicable, reprehensible habit and uh, something that Dumbledore would never take
1: up. Yeah, Dumbledore just eats candy a lot.
0: Yeah, exactly. Would you rather be a guy who can blow very fancy smoke rings or just a guy who enjoys candy? But, you know,
1: I think Gandalf has a good time, too. He seems like, when things are going okay, he seems like a jolly guy. You know, he, like, has fun fireworks shows, and he hangs out with the hobbits, and does
0: cool stuff. People like him. Let me submit that things are rarely going okay over there. Whereas at Hogwarts, things are often fairly good. Well, you
1: also have to look at where each of them is at the end of the story. Uh, And we won't talk anymore about that.
0: Well... Yeah, I guess on that front, there there is a uh, there is a front runner. Let's move on, Hank, <laughs> um, to a great question. Oh, I, I realize I'm asking all the questions. Maybe you I should, yeah, ask you
1: one. never let me ask questions. All right. So Sophia says, "Dear Hank and John, what type of apocalypse would you most like to happen? No kind. I would prefer a zero kind of apocalypse. I just don't like what mm. I." Why does there have to be an apocalypse? No, I don't... I want my apocalypse to be the heat death of the universe, the inevitable, unavoidable moment when there is no more uh, distribution of of energy unequally throughout, uh, throughout space-time. Which is going to happen, but it's the longest time it could possibly take.
0: Well, Hank, you'll be surprised to learn that... Um I am uh, looking forward to the apocalypse and spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> I actually own um, the Cambridge Encyclopedia of uh, Eschatology, which is the study of people's thoughts about the end of the world. Um, and I have uh, a tremendous amount of what's called esch- eschatological anxiety, worry about uh, the end of the world. I am a big believer in, in, uh, in, in uh, at least human the human apocalypse uh, coming in the form of a, uh, you know, not a a bang, but a whimper. I think there will be a series of sort of like minor bangs over the period of like maybe the next 5,000 years, and then we'll be reduced to like maybe 10,000 mating pairs, and uh, then we'll just kind of fight it out until there's none of us left.
1: Well, down at 10,000 mating pairs, you really have the opportunity to do the whole thing over again.
0: But we won't. Why not? Yeah, it's just not like us. Um,
1: I want to say a couple of things. First, I've never heard the word eschatological, and I like it. And I like that it includes the word scat. It makes me think of poop, and it makes me think of that wonderful musical genre or musical technique.
0: Well, if you looked at the if you looked at the word in a dictionary, you would see that it in fact does not contain the word scat. Is it,
1: what, how is it spelled? Is there a Q? Is it E S Q U A T C H? Ah, Eschatological. Uh, you
0: didn't make it very. Fu- you didn't make it very funny. <laughs> Needless to say, Hank did not participate in the scripts. Howard Spelling. Be. <laughs> Eschatology is not a hard word to spell. Well,
1: I've never heard it before. Well, it
0: is a uh, it is a Christian specific term, and you come from a broader uh, religious background. So. <laughs> uh, the other thing I want to say is,
1: when I was in college, <laughs> I wrote a song called "Rome Didn't Fall in a Day." Yeah. Uh because everyone says Rome wasn't built in a day and and then everybody looks at uh everybody looks at America or or Rome and and says like, you know, how like and and sort of the imagined uh crash comes like immediate and and like in a in a, a matter of days or weeks or months. Uh when really that's not how it works. Rome took Hundreds of years to fall and and so did all great empires for the most part So I
0: mean in fact you could argue that there was something of a Roman Empire until like uh, World War one I. I mean it all depends on how you define uh, Roman-ness and and you could argue that there's a Roman Empire uh, Now seated in, the, in, in at the Vatican City that extends, uh, you know, I mean beginnings and ends in general uh, are extremely undramatic uh, I found this with almost without exception, because everything that seems like it's going to be an event turns out to be a process. Everything that seems like it's going to be a revelation turns out to be like something that happens over years. Yes. Uh, Hank, We've got a question from Kathy. This is a very important question. Dear John and Hank, it's hot. I am too hot. What are some good ways to cool off? I have a song about this. You do. It's called It's Too Hot. Yes, it's called It's Too Hot. I have a song about everything,
1: apparently. The 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 end of the world. I should write more songs about the end of the world. I sure do talk
0: about it a Today's lot. Today's podcast is sponsored by Hank's Songs. Uh, Available now at dftba.com Thank you Hank Songs For your continuing patronage Of our little podcast Today's podcast is also brought to you by the fall of the Roman Empire (laughs) It took not
1: It wasn't an immediate process It took many hundreds of years And lots and lots of people died
0: Uh, Thank you fall of the Roman Empire For your support of the
1: world as it is today We'd
0: love to thank our sponsor uh, For today's podcast The Archduke Franz Ferdinand Whose assassination in 1914 sparked World War I, the event that once and for all ended any argument over whether there was still a Roman Empire. Sponsoring this
1: podcast, Gavrilo Princip, who shot the Archduke Franz Ferdinand after walking out of a sandwich shop because he really didn't like the idea of the Austro-Hungarian Empire.
0: And we'd also like to thank uh, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand's uh, idiot uncle. The Emperor Franz Joseph, uh, who never even really liked his nephew, but still got angry enough about the assassination to go ahead and start World War I. Thanks for sponsoring our podcast. <laughs> Emperor Franz Joseph of the now non-existent Austro-Hungarian Empire. Let's not include this. I'm not sure how much of that is going to end up in the podcast, but in case it got <laughs> cut at some point, Hank and I just spent 20 minutes uh, going back and forth trying to prove which of us knew more about the start of World War I.
1: Oh, I know a great deal about the start of World War One.
0: Yeah, so do I. That's why it took 20 minutes for us to have the debate. Uh, if I could go back to the question, which is not about the start of World War One, but instead about the fact that it is currently hot outside, at least in much of the Northern Hemisphere, uh, what are some good ways to cool off?
1: Uh, you can go and get some ice cubes and put them in your pants. <laughs> there you, you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Oh no, a- Hank,
0: I don't think there's a need for a second uh, for a second piece of advice. <laughs> that that should suffice. So there you have it, uh, Kathy. Another thing that I used to do, even though I know that that's the only piece of advice we really need to share, is I used to uh, put my hat in the freezer every night, and I would wake up in the morning and put my hat on. That's a good idea. Yeah, that's when I lived in Chicago.
1: I find that in general, uh, just having, having something cold is extremely helpful. You wouldn't really think it, but just like holding on to a cold thing cools down your whole body quite a lot. There's a lot of blood vessels in your hand.
0: Hank, uh, speaking of your knowledge of science, we've got a question from James who writes, Dear John and Hank, if the universe has no edge, how is it expanding? (sighs) It's a great question. I have no idea because I do not understand, even after it has been explained to me by both my brother and Neil deGrasse Tyson, how the universe can possibly not have an edge if it is also expanding. What is it expanding into? So, take your shirt and stretch it. Okay,
1: I've got it. And stretch your shirt.
0: Just so you know, Hank, I'm wearing an AFC Wimbledon shirt. I'm stretching it. I'm wearing an Andrew Huang
1: shirt. Uh, So you're stretching it. Oh, well,
0: who loves Mars? Not you. (laughs)
1: Uh, Stretch it, and there's... there's the, The fabric doesn't... So, like, ignoring certain things, the fabric doesn't expand into anything. It just expands. It just gets bigger.
0: Disagree. the The fabric expands into the air. <laughs>
1: Don't think about the air. Just think about the fabric. If the fabric were all of space time, if the fabric were three dimensional and four dimensional, uh, then then it would just be expanding, and it wouldn't be expanding into anything. It would just be getting with more space between it.
0: Right. Okay. That's a great. Uh, uh, that's a great explanation. I really appreciate it. I still have a c- couple of questions. <laughs> The first thing is that when I expand <laughs> when I expand my shirt, um, I can't help but notice that my shirt has a, an edge. <laughs> um, I'm holding it right well, now that's... in its most expanded capacity, and there does seem to be an, an edge of it. A, and after the shirt, there is um, I, what I would call air. Well, um, imagine that,
1: right? But the, the fact that there is an edge to the shirt does not affect how the shirt. Uh, expands. If you if you had an infinite piece of shirt and you stretched it, what would happen?
0: I cannot imagine. I mean, first <laughs> off, asking me to imagine an infinite piece of shirt is a big ask. I was just having this conversation with my five year old son actually, because he said um, that he was having an argument at camp over whether infinity was the biggest number or whether infinity plus one was the biggest number, and I had. To explain to him um, that, first off, not all infinities are of the same size. And secondly, infinity is is not a number. Like, infinity is not a very large number. It's it's just a countlessness. Yeah. And so you're asking me to imagine an infinite shirt, right? Yes. All right. I think I have it. And then stretch stretch the shirt. I'm stretching it. So what happened? Uh, well, first off, I can't, I can't notice that even in my mind, the infinite shirt does have edges. But I know that that is a weakness of my mind. Because the infinite shirt can't have edges because the infinite shirt is not very, very big. It's infinite, which is different from very, very big. So I'm trying to train my mind to imagine that. Okay. Now the infinite shirt is stretching. So two points, two points on that infinite shirt just got farther apart. Two points on that infinite shirt got farther apart. Quick question, what did that infinite shirt expand into? (laughs) I think that the problem is
1: not with the expanding. I think it is with the infinite. I think that's the part that we really have a hard time with Because, because it doesn't need to have expanded into anything because it was infinite. It can't expand anything. It, it can't expand into anything. It was already as big as it can be.
0: So what you're saying is that the universe doesn't have an edge because it's infinite, and it's able to expand, but there's nothing on the other side of that expanse because it has no edge.
1: Kind of, yeah.
0: Oh, man. The, I mean...
1: The, there's not There's not an expanse to be on the other side of.
0: Oh, my God. This is such a funny comedy podcast. Um... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Amy asks, "Dear Hank and John, why do we have individual fingerprints? What practical purpose could they possibly have evolved to serve?" I know the
0: actual answer to this question. Uh, John, do you want to take a guess? I do want to take a guess, Hank. Thank you for the opportunity. We evolved individually distinct fingerprints so that every person uh, could grip slightly different objects well. <laughs> That is my guess. Is that correct?
1: It's, I mean, no, but I love it. I love the idea that like uh, that, that, like there's just over the broad spectrum of humanity, there's a person that can right. hold everything perfectly. Like, like right. no so there's, one like, object, There's one person. Yes, there's only one person yes. who has the perfect fingerprints for the iPhone six. And there's
0: only one person who has the perfect fingerprint to like, uh, I don't know, hold a trillium flower. <laughs> There's only one person who has the f- perfect fingerprint to to hold the particular club that killed the first mastodon. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um. Uh, I, I love you. I love it. Um. The the answer uh, is that fingerprints uh, are there because they help us grip things. They they increase the surface area of our of the of our fingers and and they do increase uh, the friction between our fingers and surfaces. So they're they're helpful. So you, I was right. Yeah. I was right. You're welcome, Amy. You can welcome, tell that Amy. by like, rubbing your, like, four, like, your, your, the tops of your fingers on your desk and then rubbing the bottoms of your fingers on your desk. The, the Your 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 fingertips will stick more. Um And as for why we evolved to have individual different fingerprints, every person has different fingerprints, we didn't evolve to have different fingerprints. That is just a weird consequence of how fingerprints are made when we are in the womb. And partially... Or... or I was right. One of those two things are the
0: truth. Hank, if the universe has no edge, how is it expanding exactly? Like, how, What is it expanding into?
1: This question is from Eric. Eric says, Dear Hank and John, I just got my first job as a go-kart maintenance person. I don't know the actual job title. And I'm feeling the pressure. With school and friends, I'm having trouble balancing it all. How did you manage to transition into the workforce from your first jobs?
0: First off, Eric, let me just say that uh, as first jobs go, go-kart maintenance person is amazing. It's pretty cool. I'm I mean, you're learning about people, uh, because you've got to work with customers. uh, But you're also learning about engineering and you're also probably learning about like coworkers um and managers it's like a, to me it's like the perfect first job also i am a massive go-kart enthusiast Hank do you know about my go-kart enthusiasm it's an extension of my love for race cars yeah yeah a little bit yeah i love go-karts they're amazing uh i i don't know what was your first job Hank i don't remember walmart oh right walmart yeah you did the carts.
1: Yeah, I did the carts, among other things.
0: I did find it difficult to manage my uh, social life and my academic obligations alongside uh, my early jobs. I worked at a warehouse, and then I worked at Steak and Shake and a couple other restaurants. Um, I think the key for me was understanding that my... Job in some ways had to come last like I needed to be there when I needed to be there And I needed to pay attention and do a reasonably good job Um, but In terms of my emotional energy, that needed to go toward my friends and my family and uh, my academic work. I
1: actually, luckily enough, worked with a lot of my friends at Walmart. Um, So there was was a bit of a social component to it, Uh, and in fact that is why I worked at that Walmart. There was a closer Walmart to my house that I chose not to work at because I didn't know anyone who worked there. and I think that a lot of people have uh, good social experiences at work, and I don't know if that is an option uh, open to you at your go-kart place, but um, but it might be worth exploring. And, yeah, I mean... I'll tell you
0: what, from my Steak and Shake experience, sometimes it is not worth exploring. <laughs> because, as you know, Hank, my main coworker, worker he, he murdered someone, and now he's in, in prison. <laughs> but that's a story for a different podcast.
1: Um I have a a, a short poem that is <laughs> is relevant to this.
0: <laughs> I can't wait. You're such a great reader. Uh, and student of poetry I cannot wait to to, to learn what what poem is relevant
1: to this. It's very relevant It's by Kenneth Koch It's called You want a Social Life With Friends
0: Oh, you only know about this poem because of me Probably I was introduced to this I have to say, I was introduced to this poem uh, By Amy kraus Rosenthal And it's on my list for, for short poems to use In future podcasts But go ahead, use it now, Hank
1: I, I know about this poem because Alan Wostovka Did a kinetic typography video to it It is called You Want a Social Life with Friends by Kenneth Koch. You want a social life with friends, a passionate love life, and as well to work hard every day. What's true is that of these three, you may have two. And two may pay you dividends, but never may have three.
0: Yeah, I'm afraid that might be true. I mean,
1: it's... It's definitely difficult to balance all of the things and there are other things to balance too. like there's your personal health Which becomes a bigger deal as you get older like make like maintaining that and there's you know Family obligations and and making sure that you take care of the people who have taken care of you and and like there's lots of Lots of balance.
0: There's also Game of Thrones, which is on every Sunday And if you miss it even by like two hours Twitter spoils it for you so there's so there's a lot to manage in this life and it's not easy, but I would just encourage you to always try to watch the shows that you love live, because otherwise people will ruin them for you. Sorry, what were we talking about?
1: <laughs> Time management is hard.
0: Hank, do you ever pause to consider the fact that our father uh, worked on fishing boats in Alaska? And like it is difficult to
1: perceive, to, to like see that in my mind's eye,
0: yes. And he, like, mushed dogs in Alaska, and he hiked most of the Appalachian Trail, and he, like, froze camping in the Grand Canyon, and look at us, just a couple of guys sitting in comfortable chairs.
1: It's a very nice chair. Actually, my dad bought this chair for me. <laughs> <laughs> he took me to the to the office store, and he was like, you're getting a real chair.
0: Dude, you know what's funny about that? Mom bought my chair for me. <laughs> She even paid for it. It was my 27th birthday present. This lazy boy that I'm sitting in right now. It may have been my
1: 27th birthday present.
0: <laughs> oh, you, man. Well,
1: we didn't know that 27 was was, was chair birthday.
0: <laughs> All you 27-year-olds out there, make sure to uh, ask your parents for a very special birthday gift. Chair.
1: Chairs are very important to your happiness.
0: Okay, Hank, one more question before we get uh, to... The news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, the most important portion of the podcast. This is from a 12-year-old Harim. Hypothetically, how much would it cost to move AFC Wimbledon, the greatest football club in the history of the world, to Mars, a cold dead rock in the vacuum of space, for a day? How much would it cost, Hank, to move AFC Wimbledon to Mars, for a day, and I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to give you. Uh, I'm going to. I'm going to help you out with some numbers. Okay. Oh wow. We're not going to move AFC Wimbledon Stadium. That's unreasonable. And we're not going to move uh, anything. Uh, nece- we're not going to move anything more than is absolutely necessary for AFC Wimbledon to play a match on Mars. Right. So that is a goal. Eleven players, including Audubon, Akinfenwa. Uh, and the manager, Neil Ardley, uh, along with, you know, all the clothes and the cleats necessary to play uh, soccer on Mars. The, the, those are your requirements, Hank. How much would it cost to move AFC Wimbledon to Mars for one day?
1: Uh, how many players are there on AFC Wimbledon? Well,
0: uh, we, we, I think we're going to go ahead and not bring any substitutes. Um, and so just the 11, 11 starters. 11. Yeah, a goalkeeper and ten outfield players. Do, have you just never watched a soccer game in your entire life?
1: So how are they gonna, how are they gonna play a game? Are they, can they play like like five on five or something?
0: No, they're gonna play um, against a team that, uh, that didn't... That lives on Mars. They're gonna, yeah, they're gonna play against a, a team that is currently on Mars.
1: Okay, um, and they're, they're, can they only go for a day or can they
0: stay for a while? Is it cheaper to stay? Yes. Why, why, can you briefly explain to me why it is cheaper to stay on Mars than it is to just uh, come and go?
1: Because you have to sort of launch at the time when Earth is closest. And so when we when we launch the Earth mission, it will be at a time when Earth is closest to Mars. And by the time they get there, Earth will be far away from Mars. So you have to wait for Earth to get close again.
0: Wow. All right. So we will amend uh, Harim's question. AFC Wimbledon will be taking a how long? How long? What what kind of what kind of Mars
1: I I don't I don't know. Like probably a year. A no, year? Probably months.
0: Probably months. Months Hank, AFC Wimbledon has a game every single Saturday. You <laughs> can't we can't take months away. What 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 will happen to our position in League Two with Autobiock and Fenwa on Mars instead of playing in in, 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 in England? sorry I'm getting upset I sometimes stutter when I'm upset
1: I bet we could get like sort of the cost down to like one and a half billion per person
0: million or billion <laughs>
1: <laughs> I find that question funny it's billion with
0: a B billion with a B per person it's a long it's a long trip you think the cost of uh, moving AFC Wimbledon to Mars uh, would be 1.5 billion billion dollars per person times 11 is uh god i'm so bad at math what is it 16 work it work it 16.5 billion dollars is your proposal for getting uh afc wimbledon to mars does that include the the... i don't know
1: that's that seems low that seems low to me now that now that i've said it out loud well
0: i also i forgot neil i forgot neil ardley the manager so that's 18 billion yes Um. Okay, Uh, if any of our listeners uh, have more precise information on how much it would cost to get AFC Wimbledon to Mars, uh, go ahead and send us emails with your calculations uh, at hankandjohn at gmail.com. That's also where you can email us your questions. Thank you uh, to Harim and everybody who asked a question today. Um, Hank? It's time for the news from Mars. What's going on in uh, Mars these days?
1: Geologists have discovered glass on Mars, which is not in itself super surprising because glass is formed here on Earth when meteorites impact the Earth. So uh, it is it was likely that glass would be uh, around on Mars. The, the news, however, is, though, that they are able to, for the first time, detect where there's a lot of glass on the surface of Mars from orbit using... Uh, using some spectroscopy techniques that are brand new. And the cool thing about that potentially is that here on Earth, when glass is formed by natural events, you can actually uh, it actually captures some of the atmosphere in the glass. and so you can look inside the glass and see uh, what uh, what the atmosphere was like when that glass formed on Earth, which gives us a little bit of insight into the history of our planet. And that will also, potentially give us insight into the history of Mars, which is great because uh, a lot of the ways that we here on Earth uh, figure out you know, what the world was like a long time ago uh, might not work as well on Mars, but this should work just fine and could potentially tell us if one day in the distant past, Mars had life on it.
0: Hank, uh, quick question. You're saying that glass contains the history of the atmosphere from when it was made?
1: Yeah, it like traps little little bubbles of air.
0: I mean, I like to make fun of your Mars news, but that is actually pretty awesome news. Dang it!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I never know what you're
0: gonna be excited about. I, I, I really don't. That's fascinating. <laughs> well, I think that my favorite thing about it is that unlike most of your Mars news, it actually is happening on Mars. <laughs> um, so the the news the news from a f c wimbledon this week hank as you know uh a f c wimbledon is a club uh that was formed by a group of fans after uh wimbledon f c uh departed uh for uh the town that shall not be named in the greatest scandal in the history of English football. Um, It's a fan-owned club, a fan-controlled club, but it's also uh, a very charity-oriented club. They have a great foundation, the AFC Wimbledon Foundation, and they also partner Uh, frequently uh, with an organization called War Child, which is uh, an organization that works with uh, children um, who are refugees uh, from war or living in uh, places of conflict, Uh, a great organization uh, based in the UK. And right now, um, if you Google AFC Wimbledon earphones or AFC Wimbledon, uh, yeah, just Google AFC Wimbledon earphones uh you uh can get these amazing afc wimbledon earphones that i'm actually using to talk to you right now hank they've got a great mic on them uh and their the sound quality is excellent and uh the, uh, the money raised is split between uh, War Child and the AFC Wimbledon Foundation. I mentioned this uh, in no small part, Hank, because uh, you are c- not currently using earphones with a mic on them, and it makes podcasting unnecessarily difficult. So I have bought you a pair, uh, and I've also bought a pair uh, for everybody uh, who asked a question that was used on today's podcast. Um, but uh, they're really great—I'm genuinely great earphones—and they got the little AFC Wimbledon logo on them, which is cool too. Um, but it's a great way to support charity. So AFC Wimbledon launched that this week, and uh, I wanted to let you know about it. Um, and the history of that and everything else will apparently be trapped inside of my window, so that's cool.
1: <laughs> There's probably a lot less air trapped inside of your your, your window than in naturally formed glass that. Uh that, that is formed in pretty chaotic circumstances, N- not so much like the way that your window glass is formed.
0: You're really harsh on my buzz here, Hank. Um sorry about that. You can <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the Hank Green story, though. Um, <laughs> uh, I have some like Hank tells me a little bit about science, I make some kind of broad, metaphorically resonant conclusion about it, and then Hank is like, Yeah, but no, not actually. Um <laughs> Sorry. If you have a question for us, again, please uh, email us at hankandjohn at gmail.com, an email address clearly invented by Hank. Uh, and thanks again for uh, listening to our podcast. What did we learn today, Hank?
1: Oh, goodness. We learned that uh, we learned a lot about the history of of the beginning of World War I, thanks to our sponsor for this podcast and, and the fall of the Roman Empire.
0: Uh, not to mention the fact that we learned uh, the importance of putting ice cubes in your pants— and uh, the fact that we'd rather be Dumbledore than Gandalf, at least until book mm, five. Nope. Nope.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least until book
0: five. Thanks for listening. And as we say in our hometown of Nerdfighteria, don't forget to be awesome. Don't
1: forget to be uh, awesome. so hard to do when you're doing it. <laughs> don't forget to be awesome.